From primitive times men have built temples, houses for their gods. Huge fortunes have been donated. Ornate decorative works of art have adorned and intricate liturgical ceremonies composed. Today we often refer to our church buildings as the house of God, but is this accurate? Our study leader Dave Wurtson begins to trace the subject of God's temple through the scriptures and challenges us to clarify our thinking about where the true house of the Lord is in the world today. I mention the word temple and what comes to your mind? Temple. Maybe you think of the Temple of Doom, you think of Harrison, the actor, running after some sacred object in the deep recesses of Egypt. Down through the centuries, almost from the beginning of time, there have been temples. In fact, when you study archaeology, you find out that some of the most enduring facilities in all of history are temples that men have built to the gods. These temples usually are built very strongly. They act kind of as a, as a stronghold. In the ancient world, they, the temple was often a place that you would go to, not just for worship, but for security. And so it would almost be like a fort. At the center of these temples, you would always have the focal point of what those people were devoted to. Like I've shared with you in the past, that if you went maybe to one of the Canaanite temples, when you got right to the center of the temple, there would be an idol, in fact, two idols, a naked female idol and a male idol who would represent the focus of the Canaanite culture. They worshipped sexuality, immoral sexuality, in fact. And that was at the heart of their system. But they had temples. So a temple is a place that men and women build. They devote intense energy to it. And they build this place because in some way they believe that their gods are located in the temple. In fact, in Egypt, they would carry their gods back and forth. They would carry them up and down the river Nile to different temples from Karnak. They would go up to Heliopolis and back and forth. They would take their idols and put them in these different houses that they had built for their gods. Now, we all know that that's a pagan idea. And it's not at all what we believe. But I want to ask you a question as believers. How many of you have ever heard someone pray? It's the beginning of church, but it's a very common prayer to hear this. Dear Lord, so I'm not sure we did it today, but it's very, very common for someone to begin a service this way. Dear Lord, bless us as we've come into the house of the Lord. We pray that as we've gathered in your house, that we would meet you in a special way. How many of you have ever heard a prayer like that? Okay. How many of you have ever heard a series from the book of Haggai on the fact that the temple project has bogged down? You are thinking too much about building your own homes. You're thinking too much of building your own lives and the church is becoming a shambles. And we need to give so that we can build the house of the Lord. And like the children of Israel in the Old Testament, let's gladly bring our gold and our silver and our gifts so we can build the house of the Lord. How many of you have ever heard a building project launched like that? Okay, that's from the book of Haggai. It's about the building of the temple in the Old Testament. Now, I don't want to put anybody in this spot, but it's very important because if we don't think biblically, we're not going to be free. And what I find is we use words like the house of the Lord 
as we use words like the church, we use words like the temple, we begin to almost make them interchangeable. And the tragedy is that because it's not a biblical idea, because we start to be motivated in unbiblical ways, we cease to be able to be all that God wants us to be. Because one of the major things that I want you to understand today is that there is a legitimate temple. Almost from the beginning of time, especially from the beginning of history with the children of Israel, there has been a focal point. There has been a place. That's the idea of a temple. It's the special place where the gods choose to locate themselves. But what the Bible does, the Bible comes along and says that there are not many gods, but there is one God. And that one God chooses specific, true, authentic places to reveal His presence. And we want to study from early in Israel's history this morning, coming right up into our present day, asking the question, where is the temple? Where is that special place where God chooses to localize His presence? I want you to begin by turning your Bibles to Acts chapter 7. Because Stephen, just before he was martyred, gave a message on this idea of the temple. It was a stirring message. In fact, he ended up getting stoned for it, which is a tough one. I mean, man alive, he ended up losing his life. But if you look at Acts chapter 7, we read about the history of the temple in Acts chapter 7, just before he was stoned. You look at verse 44, we'll pick up right at the end of the message. He says this, Our forefathers had the tabernacle of the testimony with them in the desert. Now, what does that conjure up in your mind pictures of? The wandering who? The wandering Israelites in the wilderness. Those are the forefathers. Now, they had a tabernacle of testimony with them in the desert. It had been made as directed by Moses according to the pattern that he had seen. Having received the tabernacle, our forefathers under Joshua brought it with them when they took the land from the nations God drove out before them. It remained in the land until the time of David. Now, if you turn back to the book of Exodus chapter 25, you'll read the Old Testament passage which has God directly revealing to Moses about this tabernacle. Exodus chapter 25, verse 1. The Lord said to Moses, Tell the Israelites to bring me an offering. You are to receive the offerings for me from each man whose heart prompts him to give. And so back in the Old Testament, the children of Israel came out of the wilderness. The Lord began to prompt the individual hearts. Men and women, just like yourselves, only they were Israelites that had been delivered from Egypt. The Lord began to prompt their hearts to give. And what were they to give? It goes through a whole list of things that they were to give. Some of these items would be tough for us to get our hands on, but we probably could. Gold, silver, bronze, blue, purple, scarlet, fine linen, goat hair. You'd have to go over to my next-door neighbors and take some of their goats. Ram skins dyed red. And hides of sea cows. Anybody have any sea cows? Okay. I case you wood olive oil for the light, spices for the anointing of oil, and the fragrant incense and onyx stones and other gems to be mounted on the ephod the breastplate. This tabernacle in the wilderness is being commissioned by the Lord God himself. They are gathering together the raw materials to build it, precious stones and precious materials. 
And then in verse 8, the Lord says, Then I will make for them a sanctuary and I will dwell among them. I will make this tabernacle and all of its furnishings and you are to do it exactly like the pattern that I tell you, just as I have shown you. These were the gifts that God's people willingly brought. It was going to be a dwelling place for their God and they were to build it exactly as the Lord God commanded them. So as we ask the question, what about the idea of a temple? What about the idea of a dwelling place for the gods? As we open the Bible, one of the very first legitimate dwelling places of the God, not the gods. Because the Bible says there's only one Yahweh God was the tabernacle in the wilderness. And when this tabernacle was completed, the very glory, what's called the Shekinah glory of God, what in the daytime looked like a gigantic cloud, a magnificent cloud, what at night looked like a flaming, mysterious torch in the night, centered in the Holy of Holies of this tripartite temple that had an outer vestibule and then an inner room where the, only the priests could enter, and then the Holy of Holies where only one high priest could enter only one time a year in the Day of Atonement. But the tabernacle was completed, first of all, only made out of skins, just like a temporary tent. And yet that became a place where in the Old Testament, God chose to, as the Old Testament tells us, reveal his name. And as the children of Israel wandered through the wilderness, as they did battle with their enemies, that tabernacle was a witness to them that the very presence of God was among the people. Now, that tabernacle served as the dwelling place where God, in a special way, dwelled among his people. Does that mean that God didn't live in all the heavens? Did that mean that God wasn't omnipresent? Well, the Old Testament keeps a very delicate balance. It speaks about the God that even all the heavens can't contain him. And yet it also speaks about a God who chooses in a special way to make his presence felt in a specific, particular location. I want you to remember, first of all, where was the first place, the first temple, the first tabernacle, you might say, where God chose to reveal his name? It was the tabernacle in the, tell me, it was the tabernacle in the wilderness. Where was the first place God legitimately chose to present his name? Don't forget it, okay? Now, David got a burden. Can anybody remember what David's burden was? David, as he was put on the throne, he got a great burden. And he wanted to do something very special for the Lord. He wanted to build a temple. In fact, he even started gathering materials for him. Does anybody remember whether David was able to build that temple? Why couldn't David build the temple? Because he was a man of war. The Lord said he was a man of war, and God said that his temple would not be built in the land of Israel until there was peace. And God used David, the warrior king, to carve out the kingdom of Israel when David was finished with his 40-year reign, his son Solomon, his son, the son of peace, ruled on the throne. And God came to Solomon very early in the book of 1 Kings, and he told Solomon, you will be my man. You will build the tabernacle. If you want to read the story, you can turn back to 1 Kings chapter 1. In fact, the whole first part of 1 Kings, 1 Kings chapter 1, all the way through until about a quarter of the book, it's dedicated to the building of this temple. 
There's an unbelievable stirring scene as Solomon collects all the material. It takes them seven years to build this magnificent witness to the glory of God among the people. They have a big dedication ceremony. And in 1 Kings chapter 8, we read about Solomon standing up before all the people in the temple precincts and probably thousands upon thousands of people had gathered. They sacrificed hundreds upon hundreds of sacrificial animals. You talk about music. I mean, you had some of the most fantastic Jewish music you've ever heard. And Solomon got up right at the culmination of this time, and he gave a stirring message in First Kings about how the fact that who were they to think that they could build a house for God? Because just as I was just relating to you, who could ever build a house that could contain the God of creation? Who could ever think pridefully that they could build a building, no matter how magnificent it might be? Even I.M. Pei couldn't build a building that could be magnificent enough. I mean, he can do it to harbor the Dallas Symphony. But Solomon would say, Pei, you can't do it for the Lord God of Israel. And so Solomon was very clear, even the heavens can't contain the glory of our God and the power of his presence. And yet God had chosen lovingly to condescend, to come down to his people, to live among them. And as Solomon finished his speech, the Shekinah glory of God, just as it had dwelled in the tabernacle of the wilderness, the glory of God filled Solomon's temple. It tells it that the glory of God was so intense in that temple that the priests could not even carry out their duties in the building. And all of Israel sat in awe as the presence of God was in the temple. Now, don't you wish you lived in those days? Don't you wish you lived in the days in the wilderness when you could just walk out at night and you could look to the tabernacle and you could see the glow of the presence of God in the holy place? And if you ever doubted, is God among us? You could get up at night at 2 o'clock when you were worried and you didn't think things were going to work out and you could say, man, I'm not sure God is among us. You could just open the flap of your tent, walk outside, look, and there it would be. God's among us. Wouldn't that be great? Or wouldn't you like to live in the days of Solomon when you could come down from Galilee three times a year, you could go into the temple, you could offer your sacrifice, and you could know that in the Holy of Holies, the presence of God was among you. What exciting days those would be. And the ancient Israelites felt that kind of excitement. They felt that kind of joy. And there's that kind of rhythm of celebration in the Old Testament as the people celebrate the presence of God in their midst. But then we move into some dark days and the Temple of Solomon. The Temple of Solomon in 586 is crushed by the armies of Nebuchadnezzar. And Nebuchadnezzar came down and in 586, which was the culmination of campaigns that started back in 605, the mighty army of the Babylonians took those stones that Solomon had built and they got hundreds of men to push them down. They tore down those gold and laid walls, and they destroyed the temple. And Jeremiah the prophet sat on the ashes of the temple and of the city of Jerusalem, and he lamented. In the book of Lamentations, he cried. Now, you wouldn't want to live in those days, would you? Can you imagine how the Israelites felt? Ezekiel talks about the glory departing from Solomon's temple. 
He speaks about it going from one chamber to the next and finally out the eastern gate and up and away. He speaks about God removing his presence. He sees it in a vision and the presence of God isn't among his people anymore. And the people of the exile, those 70 years in Babylon, cried and they wept. They were many times challenged. The Babylonians cursed them and said, Hey, you believed in Yahweh. Whoever heard of a guy named Yahweh? Whoever worshipped a God who doesn't even have a statue? You can't even see your God. Men are like, we worship Marduk. Look at the buildings he has built. Just walk down the great lion way. Look at that beautiful architecture. Look at our idols. We're the power of the world. And they just cursed the Israelites, mocked them. And a band of Israelites like Daniel joining with many others. They didn't know what the answer was until the prophet started to tell them, God removed his presence because you were disobedient, not because he was weak. God allowed his temple to be destroyed because his temple had become cursed and blasphemed. It had become an abomination because you had polluted his sanctuary with idols. You had become an unethical people. You had become a people that did not obey the moral law of God. And God's prophets said that right at the heart of the temple of Jerusalem that Solomon built were the ten words of God. And the prophets, like thunder claps, would cry out, People, you have not honored the Lord with all your heart. The prophet would say, You have not kept the Sabbath. The prophet would say, You have coveted your neighbor's material things. You have stolen. You have not exercised mercy. You have not cared for the poor. And that's why God removed the temple of Jerusalem, not because he was weak. And that was a message of judgment, a message of doom and the end of all things for Israel. But then the prophets went on and predicted there would be a day of restoration. They predicted a near day of restoration. Jeremiah predicted that 70 years after the rocks of the temple were torn down, that God would issue a decree and the temple would be rebuilt. That there would be another temple. And the presence of God would once again dwell among its people. In the book of Ezra, especially chapters 1 through 6, if you wonder what the book of Ezra is about, the book of Ezra picks up that glory of God, that revelation of the presence of God. And in 538, the mighty Lord God of heaven caused Cyrus, a pagan king, the mighty Persian ruler, a ruler that was as great militarily in many ways as Alexander the Great of Greece a few years later, Cyrus, after conquering the mighty Babylonians, very soon after the fall of Babylon, Cyrus sent out a decree throughout all of his land. And he let people go back to their native land. Instead of following the Babylonian practice of mislocating people and changing their homelands and bringing them to all different parts of the empire, he let people go back home. And he told the Israelites, he told Zerubbabel, go, build the temple in Jerusalem. And pray for me in that temple. Incredible. What a miracle. What a turning of the tables, you might say. And a band of Israelites went back and they started rebuilding the temple. It took them 20 years to do it. They worked on it. They got all bogged down because of enemies. And that is what the book of Haggai is about. But after 20 years and a marvelous work of God, the temple was built again. And once again, there was a holy place in the land of Jerusalem. 
The older people that had lived the 70 years, that had lived through the captivity, that could remember back to the days of Solomon, at the dedication of the post-exilic temple, they cried because they felt it was such a come down. It was such a small thing. It was, it was not nearly as magnificent because the riches of Solomon had deteriorated in the dust and the older people cried. And the prophet said, don't cry. Malachi said, don't cry. A messenger will come to this temple who the temple of Solomon never saw. It was that post-exilic temple that in 30 B.C. began to be embellished after being destroyed by the Romans and, and not completely destroyed but attacked uh, twice by the Romans and torn down and plundered. The holy place even was plundered. It was abominated by Antiochus Epiphanes just throwing out some of the history, that temple, that post-exilic temple was up and down, abominated, built, going through struggles. But about 30 years before Christ was born, Herod the Great, one of the most pagan evil kings that ever lived, was moved upon to build that temple in Jerusalem. And the temple that he built was one of the wonders of the ancient world. It took him more than 40 years. In fact, and during Jesus' ministry, they talked about the temple already being in the process of being built for 48 years. How would you like to have a temple project, a church project that took 48 years to complete? Man, I wonder how many pastors they went through trying to get that thing built. No, they had priests, and they went through a lot of priests during that time. Finally, we have Jesus himself coming to the temple. But it was that Herodian temple where God began to do a tremendous switch. And it's a switch that every one of you need to recognize. It's something you need to think very carefully about. I just went through a summation of bringing together many of the arguments of the book of the Old Testament. The argument from Deuteronomy all the way through to 2 Kings is that God will have a place, a particular locus of worship where he will place his name in that place and there you will worship. And Solomon's temple became the place. The Mount Zion of Jerusalem became the place. A ruinous threshing floor that David went to became the place. The mountain of Moriah where Isaac was offered in Genesis 22 was almost offered. That was the place. But in John chapter 2, the people that were defending that place came into conflict with the Messiah that owned the place. And I want you to turn to John chapter 2. Because in the ministry of Jesus, a tremendous switch takes place. And God begins to locate His presence, not in the temple of Jerusalem, but in another temple. And like a riddle that needs to be solved, let's look at what that temple is. John chapter 2, verse 12 starts to talk to us about the cleansing of the temple by Jesus. Verse 14 tells us how He found people selling cattle and sheep and doves and others sitting at tables exchanging money. He made a whip in verse 15 and drove them out of the temple. He said, get out of here. How do you dare turn my father's house into a market? And the disciples remembered zeal for his father's house would consume him. Then the Jews, the Jewish leaders who controlled this temple, demanded a sign. What miraculous sign can you show us to prove that your authority is legitimate to do all of this? And Jesus answered. Look how Jesus answered. Destroy this temple. And I will raise it again in three days. 
The Jews replied, it has taken 46 years is what it was in this time in Jesus' ministry to build this temple. And you're going to raise it in three days? You're going to tear it down and then build it again in three days? That's blasphemy. What was he referring to? John interprets that for us in verse 21. But the temple he had spoken of was his body. And after he was raised from the dead, his disciples recalled what he had said. Then they believed the scripture and the words that Jesus had spoken. In a very stirring way, a miraculous, omnipotent twist in the story took place. In the Old Testament, God's presence in a mighty, powerful way revealed itself in the temple, the tabernacle of Moses, the temple of Solomon, the temple of the post-exilic prophets. But when Jesus was born as a baby in a manger, the omnipotent, eternal, infinite creator chose to reveal his name, chose to reveal his presence in the body of a baby. The God of Mount Sinai that was in the Holy of Holies could not be touched by man. He could not be seen by man. He could not be abused by man except that he could be hurt when he was disobeyed because he was fully a person, but he was an invisible person. He wasn't someone that you could grab a hold of, that you could get close to. The whole idea of the temple in the Old Testament is that God is separate from us and all kinds of barriers need to be set up and only a certain group of very clean, very holy people can even get near him because he is so different. He's so miraculous. He's so moral. He's so pure. He's so clean. You aren't good enough to get near him. And all kinds of paraphernalia had to be gone through in order to get anywhere near the Lord God of heaven. But in the New Testament, an incredible thing happened. God became so much among us. He became a baby. And you could touch him. You could hold him. You could rock him. He lived among men. Men could curse him. I mentioned disappointment with God. Philip Yancey said that he even went to the point that men could even kill the presence, the localized presence of God. On the cross of Calvary, the temple of God hung on the cross. And in some mysterious, mighty way, Jesus, the man who was also fully God, the man in whom the presence of God dwelt so perfectly that he was one with the triune God. He died for us. And the disciples cried. They had a lot to cry about. Man destroyed the presence of God in our midst. Man destroyed God when he chose to reveal himself in such a vulnerable way to this world. He came to this world. The world knew him not. He came unto his own and his own received him not. But in the resurrection, Jesus Christ conquered death and the temple of his body was raised and taken to the right hand of God. And today, the temple of the Lord Jesus, the temple of his body, the presence of God is at the right hand of the Father. But you know what? Jesus told his disciples that it would be better if he left them. Where is the presence of God today? It's easy now because I've given you the information. I say, where was the presence of God during the days of Moses? Raise your hand. Where was the presence of God during the days of Moses? It was in thee. Where was the presence of God during the age of Solomon? It was in thee. 
In the post-exilic period, when the temple was rebuilt, where was the presence of God? In that temple. When we come to the life of Jesus, obviously, where was the localized dwelling place of God on the earth? It was in the temple of the Lord's body. Where's the temple today? Many of you got up today and said, I'm going to go to the house of the Lord. Well, I was on the building committee for this building. So I said, man, I don't know what this thing's going to be like. But this is a sorry dwelling place for God. It leaks. Only that's just about fixed. It's a great place to do what we're doing right now. It's a great place to play soccer. But this building right here is not the dwelling place of God. If you got up today and said, man, I'm going to take a bath and put my suit on, I'm going to go meet God today. You're an Old Testament saint and you came to the wrong place. You're not even in the right country. Texas is a great place, but it's not Mount Zion. It just isn't. So how do you answer the riddle? Where is the dwelling place of God today? Incredibly. Let's look at 1 Corinthians chapter 3. 1 Corinthians chapter 3 answers that question. Where is the dwelling place of God today? Those of you that were with us as we studied the book of Corinthians for many months, remember chapter 3, Paul had just come through a passage talking about intense arguments taking place among God's people. Evidently, the Corinthians were human beings just like us. One of them would say, I follow Paul. Another one says, I follow Apollos. And they argued over their teacher. They argued who was the best. Kind of like trading quarterback or something like that. And Paul in chapter 3 is very upset about it. There's also some false teachers that are saying, we need to get relevant. We need to stop all this cross stuff. We need to stop talking about the blood so much. That's foolishness. This Calvary thing outside the walls of Jerusalem, that's not with it religion. We need to get into the more exotic, the deeper truths of the Christian faith. We need to talk about morality from a Jewish ethical standpoint. And all this stuff about being cleansed of our sins by the blood of Christ, that's just not going to sit with a sophisticated modern Roman Greek audience. And Paul talks to this church that's fighting, that's beginning to move away from the mystery of the cross. And he says this. It says in chapter 3, verse 9, For we, we, the church of Corinth, we, the believers are God's fellow workers. Paul says we are all fellow workers. And specifically, he's referring to the apostles that are building the church of Jesus Christ in the first century. He says, we are the fellow workers. The only legitimacy that I have as a teacher, the apostle Paul would say, as I'm a fellow worker with Christ. Now, what is Paul building on? You. You are God's field. And this is the key, the temple. You are God's building. By the grace God has given to me, I have laid a foundation as an expert builder. And someone else is building on it. But each one should be careful how he builds, for no one can lay any foundation other than the one already laid, which is Jesus Christ. If any man builds on this foundation using gold, silver, costly stones, wood, hay, or straw, his work will be shown for what it is, because the day will bring it to light. It will be revealed with fire, and the fire will test the quality of each man's work. If what he has built survives, he will receive his reward. If it's burned up, he will suffer loss. He himself will be saved, but only as one escaping through the flames. Don't you know that you as believers are God's temple? 
that God's Spirit lives in you? If anyone destroys the temple of God, God will destroy him. For God's temple is sacred, and you are that temple. Did you get the impact of those words? The Holy of Holies in the Old Testament was the presence of God. Only once a year could a priest go into the Holy of Holies and be in the presence of God. And he did it at the risk of his life. In the New Testament, where is the Holy of Holies? Where is the dwelling place of God? Right here. Young people, you ever wonder about your body? One of the biggest negotiating things while you're a teenager is, am I okay? Am I valuable? Am I lovable? Am I important? Mom and Dad, you haven't really gotten all that together. Am I really important? Do I really have significance? What do you think? You realize this morning, I am looking out at the dwellings of God. The places on earth, the places on earth where the Creator of all the universe has chosen to live in a special way. Oh, people, you've been put down. Sometimes you've been motivated by guilt. Sometimes you feel serving your Lord is so difficult, it's so hard. Oh, please hear what the Scriptures say. How can you ever get over the thrill that the omnipotent God, by a total act of mercy and grace, says you're the temple? As we've gathered together this morning, plurally, the you here is second person plural. It's all of us as a group. We become the very dwelling place of God. You're the holy place. You're the special place where the heart of God has chosen to reveal His character, His name, His glory, His forgiveness, His mercy. You are the temple. And that's why Paul is so strong. He's talking to teachers. He's saying teachers that teach this holy temple, that teach these believers that fail to build on the gospel of Christ. You've often had this passage taught to you and you all picture yourself as individual believers going through this terrible acid test of fire. That's not the focus of 1 Corinthians 3. The focus of 1 Corinthians 3 is for the teachers over God's temple, the pastor teachers and the evangelists that are over God's temple that begin to stop building on the Word of God, on the Gospel of Christ, on the foolishness of the cross, and they begin to build with popularity and positive motivation techniques and popular psychological techniques. Not that there's anything wrong with any of those things in business or other areas, but in the temple of God, in the gathered community of the church, it's got to be the Holy Scriptures. And everything else is wood, hay, and stubble. This group has got to be built on the teaching of the gospel of Christ as revealed in the Holy Word. That's the foundation. We learned that last week and we're back at the same point again. And you, not this building, I want you to think of the temple of believers. That when we play ball, last night when we played volleyball, we did not play against another church. We had an intramural family competition. You understand that? Oh, it's important to understand that. The church that we played against it's the temple, the people that were there that have Christ in their heart. 
They're the temple. We need to convince the unbelieving world all over this area. We're not all these individual churches. We are believers. We are the dwelling place of God. We want you to become the dwelling place of God too. And the only foundation, you say, well, Dave, when you get together with a ministerial alliance, how do you decide who's really in that group or not? Well, what I stand up to again and again and again is, do you believe in the gospel? I'm able to stand up and we build the group on the gospel. You know, there's a lot of towns all around this area where I couldn't say that at all. If I stood up and said, hey, we need to be united in the gospel. We need to build in the foolishness of the cross. The guy would say, well, we, don't, we can't do that. We, you know, what, why be excited about that? We're not into that. Well, praise the Lord by a wonder. I think it's a lot of your prayers. There is a strong commitment by many spiritual leaders in this community to the gospel of Christ. And that's the way I want you to think. Building on the word of the living God. One final thing. We're not just the temple together. I want you to read 1 Corinthians 6. You say, Dave, how can I live a moral life? You'll never get in bed with somebody that doesn't belong to you if you remember that God is in your life. If you get in bed with a prostitute, you took the Son of Jesus Christ into bed in an abominable, cursing situation. And your precious Savior weeps again. Did you hear what I just said? That's an incredible thing. You know, moms and dads, moms and dads are worried about the morality of the kids. Kids, mom and dad worry about you because we know what can happen. But you know, the reality is we can't always have somebody there to check on you. Now, we can try to be wise. We can try to help. Mom and dad, you don't have anybody checking on you a lot of times, do you? I have to laugh about that. We're always trying to get somebody to check on the kids. Who checked on us? We need to be wise. We need to be careful. We need to realize how powerful human passions are. But when it comes to time to say no, how are you going to do it? I'm going to tell you how you do it. Young people, moms and dads, everybody in this room, you'll know how to say no to sin if you remember you're the temple of the living God. Paul in 1 Corinthians 6 calls his people to morality based upon this precious truth that we are the temple, the dwelling place, the holy place of God. In the Old Testament, everybody needed to come in to the temple. It went kind of like this in the Old Testament. There was a central location called the temple in Jerusalem. And here we had all the world, and all the world had to come in to this temple of Jerusalem. They had to come from Persia. They had to come from Greece. They had to come from Babylon. They had to come from Syria. They all came to worship here in this central temple. Today, as we're gathered together, God has changed everything around. And here's our world. And here's the dwelling place of God. And all of us go forth into the world. Go ye into all the world. And we take God's presence. Instead of inviting people to come in to the central sanctuary in Jerusalem, we take the central sanctuary of our hearts out into the world. If ever there was a time when God's people needed to recognize that their bodies have become the very dwelling place of God, it is today. 
If ever there was a time for believers to lovingly but strongly affirm their faith in public, it is now. We must not fail to take advantage of the opportunities which no one is trying to take away from us and which we now possess. We must not forget that God has called us to represent him. We are his temples. We are his representatives in the marketplaces of secular society. We can debate about our right to pray, but if we do not personally pray ourselves, what's the difference? We can win our legal right to talk with others about the claims of Christ, but if we do not personally share our faith with others and demonstrate by our lives that Jesus has awesome power to deliver us from the addictive power of sin, the courtroom victory will become just empty rhetoric. We can get up on our soap opera and call all of our nation back to its Judeo-Christian moral roots. But if we do not admit that we have all shattered these ideal moral standards and that we all desperately stand in need of the forgiveness only the crucified Savior can provide, we will be proclaiming only a deadly curse with no hope of deliverance. Listen, proclaiming God's moral law to a secular society without the good news of God's gracious gift of Calvary and the empty tomb, this will only generate the hopeless, frustrated anger of despair. Here is my prayer. It's my prayer and it's my challenge. As evangelical believers, we must stand together and boldly declare the balanced message of Romans 6.23. For the wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. God's moral law is still the absolute diagnostic instrument that exposes the spiritual malignancy that resides in every human heart. Jesus' sacrificial death on the cross to provide a just forgiveness and his resurrection to provide the supernatural power for moral transformation, this is the only lasting cure. This is the gospel that Paul was unashamed of. This is the gospel that we must take again into every nook and cranny of secular society and ultimately to the entire world. My purpose in teaching you on Truth Encounter is to motivate you to carry out just this life and death responsibility. Let's pray together that we will be faithful to boldly declare the full counsel of God's word, not just in our churches, but out there in the marketplaces of life. We need to recognize that we are the temple of God living on the earth today. And instead of being like the Old Testament where the people needed to come to a particular city, the Lord wants us as individuals to take his presence into all the world so that all might believe. 